So typically, volume picks up sort of after about 10 a.m. It starts to steadily pick up. Laura Foreman is director of the emergency department at Kent Hospital in Rhode Island. Thursday, January 13th, was the kind of day that Dr. Foreman almost never sees anymore, relatively quiet. On this particular day, there were only 50 patients being seen in the emergency department. But in recent days, they have been totally overwhelmed. This is the worst I've seen it. And I feel like every day until today, I was saying that, like, every day we'll turn to each other here and say, this is the worst I've ever seen. I mean, honestly, I've been doing emergency medicine for 26 years now. I've never seen anything like this here, ever. Kent is a mid-sized hospital. Normally, they have enough staff to take care of more than 300 patients. But because of staff shortages, right now they can only take care of 200. And that has put a lot of extra pressure on the emergency department and on people like Dr. Foreman. I think the first word that comes to mind is disastrous, um, overwhelming, frightening, disheartening. You know, it, we are doing things every day that we never could have imagined doing a couple of years ago. We are struggling and at times failing to take care of the people who come through the door because of lack of staffing, because of lack of space, because of lack of resources. From the newsroom of The Washington Post, this is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Friday, January 21st. Today, we go inside a hospital to hear how this latest COVID surge is slamming healthcare workers on the front lines. And later in the show, we have a conversation about how Andre Leon Talley embodied the heart of the fashion world. Last week, Post video reporter Joyce Coe and health reporter Lenny Bernstein traveled to Rhode Island to see how things looked as the wave of COVID infections crested. Well, the week that we were there, Rhode Island had the highest rate of coronavirus infections per capita in the United States. I imagined it was going to be very hectic. And to a certain extent, they were pretty busy. Um, We caught them on a slow day. They didn't have some of the extremes that we know are going on there day after day after day. But it was a pretty busy ER. And what does that look like for a relatively slow day in the middle of an incredibly intense coronavirus surge? What were the kinds of things that you saw? So one of the first areas that Dr. Laura Foreman took us to was a waiting room, essentially, where they had converted certain rooms, like where they would, you know, typically bring families to tell them if their loved one had died, they would bring them to this room. So they had converted this space so that it could be an extension of the waiting room just because they had run out of space in the front of the emergency department. Before you even go into the ED, um, there's an overflow tent out front, which they didn't have to use that day. And on some days, a lot of days, they can't use it anyway because they don't have enough staff. The other day we had 35 patients in the waiting room. The team came together, we divided up, and everybody took five or six patients, and we went out to the waiting room, and we just tried to sit as close to people as we could to say, you know, hi, I'm Dr. Laura Foreman. I'm really sorry. It's going to be probably about eight or ten hours till we can get you a bed in the back. If you're okay, I can see you out here in the waiting room. And so we saw people shoulder to shoulder in the waiting room, COVID swabbing people in the waiting room. Like, it's, you know, I said to my team that day, I said, this is not, I want to be clear, this is not good medicine. There is no good medicine. This is what there is. 
I take care of patients in cars now rather than have them come in well because there isn't space to bring them into um, and we go out to the cars you know you do a brief exam you you can draw blood you can do a COVID swab have them just wait in their car um, we do a lot of picking the best bad option and sometimes seeing people in the parking lot or you know right next to somebody some stranger in the waiting room is the best bad option that we have One person we saw in the emergency department was uh, a woman named Mary Balserzak. She was 70 years old and had been waiting in the emergency department for 36 hours, uh, trying to get a bed in the full hospital where she needed to be. Oh, wow. What we see during Omicron is that the length of these stays in the emergency room have gotten much longer. At the emergency room we were at, two and three days is not uncommon. And this woman was completely miserable? Well, the first, I don't know, 12 hours at least, they had us in a room half of this size. I think it was a storage closet. That was the only place that they could get them out of the general population Mm. and try to keep them away from people in the full waiting room who some of whom were going to turn out to be uninfected. So they sort of pushed them off into this little conference room where, you know, 10 of them were sitting in chairs. And there was very little staff that came in now and then to even check on you. There was no water. There was no um, radio or TV to distract you. And um, people didn't speak to each other because everybody's so sick. So it was just, it was awful. It took about 10 hours to get her into the little exam room, the kind of place where typically if you or I sprained an ankle or uh, broke a bone, you know, we'd be taken back to one of those little tiny rooms there. And she spent the next 24 hours there. Now, that was a heck of a lot better than her first 10 hours, but not very good in terms of the care that should be given, um, you know, in a U.S. hospital. They fed her, they kept an eye on her, they put oxygen in her nose, uh, you know, through those tubes. But she really needed to be in the hospital and she couldn't get there for 24 hours. I'm really fascinated by this question of of separating COVID patients from non-COVID patients because I remember doing interviews at the beginning of the pandemic and, and hearing these descriptions of what it looked like inside of hospitals. And it seemed like there were kind of incredible pains being taken to make sure that COVID patients interacted with no one, no other patients who were not COVID positive and that there were separate entrances and there were, you know, there's plastic everywhere to cordon off the air from one part of the hospital to another. People wouldn't work the same shift between the COVID and the non-COVID parts of the hospital. And it sounds like that has changed. Dr. Foreman sort of made it clear to us that when medical staff is going into see a patient, they're basically preparing for that situation. They're suiting up regardless of if it is a COVID related patient or not. A lot of people are coming into the emergency department with something unrelated to COVID and then they get tested and find out that they do have COVID. You know, there's a mix that the ER is seeing there. Um, In the past, this emergency department was seeing COVID patients come in 70% who were unvaccinated and 30% of whom were vaccinated. Now they're saying that 50% of COVID patients are vaccinated and the other 50% are unvaccinated. So it really indicates that there uh, is a 
significant increase in breakthrough cases. But one thing that Dr. Foreman mentioned to us was that she has seen countless unvaccinated patients go on ventilators and end up dying from the coronavirus, um, but she hasn't seen any patients that have been vaccinated die from it. For for the staff who work at this hospital, what has it been like for them to deal with this latest surge? Dr. Foreman, you know, discussed with us how two years ago when you asked hospital staff to be doing this. It was it's very different than what it feels like now. You know, now hospital staff, doctors, nurses have been in this pandemic for almost two years now. And they're burnt out. Because we've lost so much staff. Um, it's worse because the rate of sort of what we call moral injury of the staff is so high right now that people don't have the resilience that they did a couple of years ago. You know, when you have an open wound and you poke it, it's so much more painful. And this is a huge open wound. This is two years of an open wound for the staff to have been doing this. And so to be pushed to this level is just so much harder now than it was a couple of years ago. A couple of years ago, we thought we would do this for a few months and we'd be okay. And you can do anything for a couple of months. You can't do anything for a couple of years. I think this is a description that we've used so many times during the course of the pandemic to describe how healthcare workers are navigating this. But what your the, the picture that you guys are painting, I mean, it sounds like a war zone. Fascinatingly enough, she says the difference between working in a war zone and working in a hospital here in Rhode Island is that, you know, you don't blame people for getting shelled. You know, you work in a war zone and you, you understand that there are these huge forces at play that have created that war and that everyone's doing their best to kind of keep themselves safe and you don't blame anyone when they've gotten shelled and, you know, it is what it is. Um, now, what has be, one of the things that's become really hard as a healthcare worker here is seeing, you know, being in here all day long and then you go out and you see people in public going to bars with their masks off, you know, congregating in big parties, refusing to get vaccinated, refusing to mask in stores. And then we see those same people come in here and we have patients in here refusing to mask even when they have COVID and coming out and yelling at staff. And and that is so hard as a healthcare worker to see that there are things that could be done to prevent this, that every single person could do to prevent this that people aren't doing. And Laura said something really extraordinary that I have never heard from a doctor. She said, I don't ask people anymore if they're vaccinated or not because I get really angry if they're not. Um, they know, get really angry. I get really you angry. Get. I get angry if they're not vaccinated. And I don't want to know because it's hard to take care of them the same way. You know, I have to, I have to overcome that if I know. Um, it's easier for me just to not know. There are a lot of people reasons for people not to get vaccinated, and it's not my job to judge them. But when I'm taking care of someone with COVID and I know that I'm putting myself at risk and my family at risk and my staff at risk, and they've not taken basic steps to protect themselves from this, when there are steps they could take, that's hard. And so I think that leads to this sort of internal cognitive gymnastics of sorts. It's a pretty shocking thing to say. The other thing she said that blew us both away was, um, don't come to my hospital right now. Hmm. She said, don't go skiing. Shovel your walk. Don't take up a new sport because this is a terrible time to come to the emergency department. We, you don't want to be here right now. Wow. Like basically do anything in your power to make sure that you don't have to be in the hospital. Right. We don't have staff to take care of some of these emergencies, you know. 
take your medications. Do, do all of the preventative things that you can do to possibly keep yourself out of the hospital right now because we can't, you know, the healthcare system as it was before the pandemic was structured to just barely be able to meet the needs of the population. You know, already it was pretty strained and now with the pandemic, we can't meet the needs of the pandemic and the kind of needs of the people that we were meeting before the pandemic. That, I, in some ways, is kind of shocking to me because I feel like part of being a medical professional is saying, like, yes, if you need care, you should come to the hospital. You should see us. Like, that's what we're here for. And um, actively dissuading people from showing up right now um, is speaks to how scary this moment is. And they will take care of you. They will find a way. There are workarounds upon workarounds upon workarounds. And they will find a way to take care of you if you need care. But for God's sake, don't make it more difficult for these people. Don't go there for, a, you know, just because you have the sniffles and you want a COVID test. Find another way to do that um, because they have enough problems. For the healthcare workers that you spent time with in this hospital, how are they finding ways to cope? Dr. Foreman talked to us about how her staff will take the long drive home at the end of the long day so that they can have more time to cry in their car. Wow. Yeah. Other days I just go home and I listen to opera because that seems to be like the most, the only way I can see like the intense expression of emotion that I feel but can't express in here. Like opera expresses it the way that nothing else does for me. It seems like they are doing anything they can to survive this and to to get through the toughest parts of all of this and and trying to find joy in the smallest moments um, and trying to release in in the little time they have between work and home. If they get no other time than a car drive home, uh, you know, their commute home, that's, that's when they take the time to process what they're going through. Joyce Coe is a video reporter for The Post. Lenny Bernstein covers health and medicine. Emma Talkoff produced this story. After the break, how Andre Leon Talley changed the fashion industry. We'll be right back. If you're looking for a smoking gun, I can absolutely guarantee you, you will not find it. In October 2001, a series of letters filled with a deadly powder called anthrax were dropped into the U.S. mail system. What started as an unprecedented case turned into an unsettling mystery. Who sent these deadly letters and why? From Campside Media and Sony Music Entertainment, I'm Josh Dean, and this is Cover Up Season 4, The Anthrax Threat, available now. I often think about some stories I did at Vogue, and I'm very proud of my work at Vogue, when I was creative director, and I was, I, she made me the creative director. There had never been an African-American man who had ever been the creative director of Vogue. Go figure. You know, that's a big moment. And um, I was very young, and I just was so excited. I just went through every day with the energy and the passion to get the work done. I always said, bring home the bacon. I always wanted to bring home the beef for Anna Wintour. 
Fashion icon Andre Leon Talley died this week at the age of 73. He was the former creative director of American Vogue, the first and only Black person to hold that position. He was also editor-at-large. He was that rarefied person of color who was seated in the front row at shows. We turn to senior critic-at-large Robin Gabon to hear more about how Tally used fashion as a way to appreciate history and art and to bring more dignity and kindness into the world. Robin got to know him pretty well over the years. Oh my gosh. I would say that I probably have formally interviewed him maybe a dozen times. But I've had lots of just casual conversations with him where he would impart some little dollop of knowledge or tell you about some designer that he had just gone to see and how you absolutely had to go and see this person. Back in 2017, Tally joined Robin on the Washington Post live stage to talk about his past and fashion's future. And it was also a moment for them to connect as friends. When I grew up, I wanted to be like Robin, to be able to observe the world of fashion and become a Pulitzer Prize winner for fashion (laughs) observation. But having said all of that, thank you, Robin, for having me. I wanted to talk to Robin to reflect on that conversation in 2017 and the life that Tally lived. For people who don't know a lot about the fashion world. Can you tell me a little bit more of who was Andre Leon Talley? Well, he really was someone who had this tremendous knowledge about fashion history, of history in general. He knew every designer. He knew every up-and-coming designer. He had this boundless curiosity. And he just had this sort of capacity to be a magnet, you know, for anyone who is really interested in fashion. He could connect it to popular culture. Over time, his very presence became this kind of shorthand for the fashion world. You know, if a film needed a moment that said, that screamed fashion with a capital F, all they had to do was, you know, have an Andre Leon Talley cameo. And and that was it. That summed it up. (laughs) What movies was he in? He was in the first Sex in the City movie. Uh, <laughs> he oversees the fashion shoot when Carrie is modeling assorted wedding gowns. Oh, yes. I remember. <laughs> he makes an appearance in Empire in which he apparently throws a little shade at Cookie for wearing uh, season-old Gucci. You won the first episode of Empire? I got that call from Lee Daniels. It was the call of a lifetime. On a Thursday night, the phone rang. It's Lee. I need you for a cameo. The next, four days later, I was on the plane. Oh, my God. I called Tom yes. Ford for the drag. I had the drag overnight from London. Oh my I was God. on the plane. It was like oh a Hollywood dream. Lee with- Daniels, call me. Are you- pot, honey. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. I love that. What was he like as a person? Like when you spent time with him, what is the kind of energy that he gave? 
he was the center of the room. I mean, he was a person who had an incredibly big personality and this big boisterous laugh. He was also a, you know, a big guy. I mean, he was six feet, six inches tall. And as he got older, he tended to wear, you know, these custom made caftans by the likes of, you know, Valentino and velvet slippers. I mean, he was a really, he was a complicated guy. You know, he could be incredibly imperious and grand. He could be moody, but he also had an incredible capacity for generosity. And it came through in a way that was just as grand as his personality. I would always say that no one could be as effusively enthusiastic and thrilled for you as Andre. I mean, when he decided that he wanted to shower you with accolades, you were just like from the neck up, you were just drowning in accolades. Hmm. So right after um, I won the Pulitzer, some I was living in New York at the time and some friends hosted a dinner for me at this restaurant downtown. And it was really, really lovely. And Andre was there. And I remember we're all sort of sitting at this long table. And when Andre came in, he had this guy with him and who he never introduced, but he was just like this guy and he was taking some pictures and he looked like, you know, he looked like a student or something like that. And um, we didn't really think that much about it. But then about, I don't know, several weeks later, I got this package in the mail and it was a series of photographs from the dinner, some in color and some in black and white that had been put into one of those like old fashioned albums with like the paper pages and the photo corners. Wow. And it had like this sort of red silk cover and it was just a note from Andre saying, I thought you might like this. I'm going to cry. Sorry. And um, he'd also included a second one for my mom. Hmm. Wow. And uh, it was just so incredibly sweet. So it was just like sort of this crazy display of generosity and, and thoughtfulness. I love that. I love that. So Robin, as you said, you've interviewed Andre many times. But back in 2017, you interviewed him for a live event at the Washington Post. This was in the before times, so there were other people in the room, as you can hear on the tape. Um, I, I just listened back to the whole thing, and I was just struck by how funny and insightful and just lovely it was to listen to. But I, I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about what you heard from him, about what his life was like growing up and who young Andre was. Yeah, he talked a lot about his grandmother who raised him. I mean, he was actually born in Washington, D.C., but he quickly moved to Durham, North Carolina, where he lived with his grandmother. My grandmother was the single most important person in my life. She passed away in 1989. She was the instrument of unconditional love. And she was, um, you know, this 
dignified, hardworking Southern woman in the grand tradition. She was a cleaning woman at Duke University. She took great pride in her own home. And he talked about how she would iron the linens. She would iron the towels. She would iron his underwear. Everything had to be neat and tidy. And he also spent a lot of time, you know, he would go into church with her. Faith was an enormous part of his upbringing and continued to be a big part of his life. Fortitude was the strength in her faith. And um, of course, on the weekends, our lives centered around going to church. And she had certain rituals that she just took as routine. The rituals of cleanliness next to godliness, everything in our house was washed. And he discovered Vogue when he was this, you know, skinny kid in the South. He would walk to the other side of town where there was a store that sold the magazine and he would buy it. And for him, it was, you know, he said a bit like going down a rabbit hole and going to this place that was glamorous and beautiful and perfect. And he, I think, was just really captivated by this world um, that seems so magical. And, and it just, it was something that was constantly a draw for him. I had a vision. I had a single tunnel vision. I was going to that magazine store to get the Vogue. And I was reading Vogue in an early age, and Vogue was the escape moment for me. Vogue, I read every caption, I read every, every, I can almost, you can talk about Vogue in the 60s and I can tell you what thing read. <laughs> or the captions, and I read the captions about men in Vogue, Camille Duhay was the editor. I read all the boutique pages. I read everything, and I loved the Vogue. It was my escape world into another world that was beyond my world at home. I loved Vogue. And how did he end up making his way to New York and into the fashion world? Like, how, how did he make it? Well, you know, he went to Brown University where he had already studied French literature and continued with his uh, French studies and actually talked about how he thought he might become an academic specializing in, in the French language and French history. But he had a great group of friends that he met actually at the Rhode Island School of Design. And it was this sort of creative click that fueled his interest in fashion and the creativity of it. And a friend's parent knew uh, Diana Vreeland, who was the famous, charismatic, very dramatic editor at Vogue, who at that point was working for the Costume Institute at the Metropolitan Museum. And Andre had a letter of an introduction to her and he ended up being her assistant. Little did I know when I got to New York, I would end up meeting Diana Vreeland, and I volunteered for her in 1974 on her second exhibit called Romantic and Glamorous Hollywood Design, and I would end up eventually working for John Fairchild at Women's Wear Daily. Now, I'm just an humble black man from the South. I'm supposed to go off and be in the Army, but I didn't. I'm supposed to do something, I know, teach in high school or teach in some grade school. And I go off to New York. I had to get out of town. I just had to. But he also worked as the receptionist at Interview Magazine. I mean, he did a lot of that early grunt work. And when he would talk to students and other young people about the fashion industry, he would always tell them that they had to be prepared. They had to educate themselves 
And more than anything, he would emphasize, you've got to be willing to work hard and you've got to understand that, you know, without doing, you know, sort of the, the hard, unglamorous work in which where you learn, you'll never progress to that point where, you know, you get to kind of share your own vision. Mm-hmm. I was really struck by hearing him talk about his own encyclopedic knowledge of the fashion world. Knowledge is power. And I did my homework. And I was a very serious student, and I loved, I loved French, French literature, French history. My favorite teacher was French. I had French one, two, three, and four, all through high school. Cynthia P. Smith was my favorite teacher, and she was so inspiring. What else do you think set Andre apart in the fashion industry? Besides that encyclopedic knowledge, he also just had this extraordinary memory for details and for those subtle gestures that really made a fashion shoot come to life. But he was curious so far beyond fashion itself. I mean, you could have a conversation with him about politics or about, um, you know, music. I mean, these were all things that really captivated him. And one of the other things is that this was someone who could move from a conversation about Madame de Pompadour to the latest rap performer to some visual arts exhibition that he had seen to the wonders of buttermilk biscuits. <laughs> you know, I mean, he could just layer all of these different aspects of his personality and all of that came through in the way that he thought about fashion. Mm. He was just as enthusiastic about Azadine Alaya as he was about Migos. <laughs> you know, I mean, these were things that fueled his creativity. Yeah, that, that is something that I find really interesting about Andre Leon Talley's career and his approach to fashion, because, you know, it sounds like from what I hear from you, from what I, I heard in this conversation you had with him, that he had this like religious devotion to fashion history, to French couture, to people like Marie Antoinette and Gloria Vanderbilt and these kind of traditional icons of fashion. And yet at the same time, I'm sure that as one of the very few Black people who have reached his level in fashion, that he also knew how destructively exclusive and sometimes discriminatory and sometimes racist that legacy of kind of traditional fashion could be. And so I, I wonder what your sense is of how he was able to square those two things of of like idolizing fashion and kind of like the fashion canon, but also trying to change that or open it up or break it down in some ways. I don't think he ever fully squared it. I mean, I don't think that, um, you know, one lifetime is enough time to make sense of all of those contradictions, unfortunately. Um, there's certain, there absolutely were times when he, you know, felt very searingly the racism that was in the fashion industry. Um, but he also had this sensibility of you just keep moving on because what's the point of standing and stomping your feet and, and crying? You just have to sort of pick up the pieces of your dream and keep pressing forward. Mm. I think one of the, the, the things that so connected him to 
multiple generations, right? I mean, he was friendly with Lee Rodswell, you know, the sister of Jacqueline Kennedy, but he was also beloved by high school kids who love fashion. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think he was able to bridge that divide because he never talked down to younger people. He always looked at their version of culture as just as valid as the ones that preceded it. And he also never sort of let the people who thought that they owned a certain rarefied culture get away with this idea that theirs was any better, was any more precious, was any more influential. Where did Andre believe that fashion was headed? He certainly still had a belief in couture because he believed in in beauty. And I think he felt that fashion should primarily bring people joy. And it didn't matter if you couldn't afford the most um, expensive, extravagant gown or, you know, the perfect custom-made suit. You know, Andre would say, then just buy the most beautiful sheets that you can afford buy the best handkerchief that you can afford. Make a point of actually buying a handkerchief instead of just using Kleenex. You know, I mean, I think he he really believed that those little luxuries really sort of fed the soul, but they also spoke to the amount of dignity that you allowed yourself. I think he was also very much someone who looked towards the future. And I think he would probably argue that uh, there can be no fashion industry of the future if it isn't more inclusive. And and finally, I, I think he saw fashion still as a really powerful kind of communication and would hope that people continue to understand it and to study it and to consider it so that they could take advantage of that communication because when it's done well and with purpose, it can say more than a thousand words. Robin Gavon is The Post's senior critic at large. This story was produced by Jordan Marie Smith. That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. Today's show was mixed by Lena Mohammed and Rennie Svernovsky. It was edited by Ariel Plotnik. Our executive producer is Maggie Penman. Our supervising senior producer is Rena Flores. Our editors are Alexis Diao and Ted Muldoon. Our producers are Lena Mohammed and Jordan Marie Smith. Ariel Plotnik and Rennie Svernovsky are associate producers. Sabi Robinson and Emma Talkoff are assistant producers. Sean Carter is our engineer. The Post Director of Audio is Renita Jablonski. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back on Monday with more stories from The Washington Post.